0: caro and welcome to the third episode of the carol pop podcast which is devoted to conversations with musicians filmmakers actors chefs and other creative people i'm excited and honored to introduce this episode's guest gogo's bassist kathy valentine kathy valentine and the gogos made me do something i didn't want to do i think the rock and roll hall of fame as a concept is stupid The whole point of rock and roll is that it's iconoclastic, music of rebellion, something that needs no official validation from an institution. Yet for years after they were eligible, the Go-Go's weren't in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and that's ridiculous. So thank you, Kathy, Valentine, and the Go-Go's for making me care about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. The Go-Go's will be inducted into the Rock Hall on Saturday, October 30th, and they deserve to be there not just because they became the first and still the only all-female rock band to score a number one album that was 1981's Beauty and the Beat. They also deserve to be there because their best songs released over their three albums in the early to mid-80s are indelible parts of our culture they totally hold up and sound just as vital today as when they were released bassist songwriter kathy valentine played a key role on those recordings she and drummer gina shock were the last two members to join the five-piece band and their muscular rhythm sections nailed down their sound kathy valentine also offered a ton and vocals and melodies and so much more the go gogos were tight powerful and oh so catchy listen to that bass intro to our lips are sealed In our previous podcast, attractions bassist Bruce Thomas said he'd trade his work on Pump It Up for what Kathy Valentine does on We Got the Beat. The title track and big hit from the band's second album, Vacation, started out as a Kathy Valentine song she originally recorded with her previous band, The Textones. She also co-wrote what may be my favorite Go-Go single, Head Over Heels, from their third album, Talk Show. And again, check out that bass break. The Go-Go's broke up, reunited, recorded, broke up, and reunited again a couple of times, with drug use playing a well-documented role in The Downfall. In her book, All I Ever Wanted, a rock and roll memoir, out now in paperback from the University of Texas Press, Kathy Valentine writes about these band dynamics, but so much more. This is a moving piece of work that goes into detail about her painful childhood in Austin, Texas. She grew up way too fast and was exposed to way too much while being raised by a single mother who made many unfortunate choices in boyfriends and lifestyle. All I Ever Wanted is not a vicarious thrill ride, though it has its thrilling moments. More than one sense of the word, it's a sober look at a life in rock and roll and all that entails. And Kathy Valentine, first and foremost, is a rock and roller, as can be heard in her work with the Techstones, the Go Go's, and other bands, and solo work up through today. Her latest single is a blazing duet with Rhett Miller on the Go Go's Techstone song, We Don't Get Along. Somehow, yeah. rock and roll quality also shines through in her no BS approach whether life is dealing out glamour or heartbreak. Kathy spoke with me from her Austin home about work and play with her fellow Go-Go's Belinda Carlisle, Jane Weedlin, Charlotte Caffey, and Gina Schock, her feelings about getting inducted into the rock hall at long last, and what it was like to ride this band's rocket ship. I also learned the little detail that will never let me watch Nick Lowe's Cruel To Be Kind video in exactly the same way. Kathy Valentine has great stories to tell, so don't get up and go until you listen to this interview. Thanks. Welcome to the Carol Podcast, Kathy Valentine. Uh, It's so exciting to have you here. I'm really glad, you know, basis of the Go Go's, solo artist, rock and roller, and the author of All I Ever Wanted, which is the fantastic new memoir out in paperback right now uh, from University of Texas Press. And it's it, it, you know, there are a lot of rock and roll memoirs out there, but this one really moved me because it really gives you a sense of what it's like to go through kind of the star making machinery and everything, but also just everything that led up to it and kind of the yin-yang of sort of the way that you'll have negative experiences in life. And they also end up having sort of positive outcomes and then, you know, sometimes vice versa, but there's this constant battle, you know, or or balance in this book of things that are happening that are kind of, you know, in a way going wrong, but then they end up having also, you know, they shape you and, and, and everything that made you who you are and how successful you are and uh, you know, is is all kind of this balance of details and that sort of thing um also i would like to tell people you should go on to kathyvalentine.com and you can listen to her songs some of them with the go Go's, many of them as a solo artist you know their bands the blue bonnets and the delphines it's all really good stuff so thanks for coming kathy
1: thank you and thank you for that little reminder that i need to up date my website because I have so much more music there's just it's so hard as an artist or anybody that's just trying to keep um, keep up with everything that's digital is it's rather difficult and uh, I'm pretty good with like Bandcamp which is a very artist friendly platform that has all my music but I haven't updated my website to the degree I would like to. So I started a blog and I thought I would be really, you know, doing that regularly, but man, life is busy. Life is busy, isn't it?
0: It's hard to do. I mean, it's hard to keep up on that stuff. And you're a very good writer also. I mean, you know, I really, uh, I really was moved by, by your book. Um, And, and, you know, I felt like I kind of lived through a lot in there, and even as just the father of you know teenage daughters, just what you went through as a teenager and preteen. Um, you know, it was it, it some of it's really heartbreaking, um, but it yeah. also gave you strength and informed i mean i mean for instance like what i was talking about the sort of the yin yang part of it you know your mother has like a drug addicted heroin dealing prison escapee boyfriend i think you you phrased it um but he also biker too (laughs) yeah biker but he also taught you how to you know plug in and play electric guitar and was was teaching you chords and that sort of thing and that was so kind of fundamental to your development as a musician even though it's this hard circumstance right
1: absolutely i mean uh i think it'd be easy you know to on the surface say that my book portrays my mom in a harsh light but i told her i was like number one it would have been really boring uh story as far as in terms of writing a memoir if she had been any different and also it's it's true i mean Everybody gets dealt things, you know, life circumstances. And it, in essence, it becomes like your tools, you know, and the tools can be used to build or to tear down. Sorry to just get all analogy talking here, but it's like I feel like the... I've just been wired to take care of myself because I knew on a fundamental level that my mom was not going to do it. And I just felt like it was my job. And that can be sad. Yeah, you can look at that and go, oh, that's sad. Poor Kathy, poor little Kathy having to take care of But on the other hand, you know, as an adult, I'm glad that's the way I'm wired, you know. It means I take pretty damn good care of myself. And some people, they don't ever get that, you know. So it's all like, you know, I think we all get our circumstances. And then what we do with them is
0: what, what counts. Yeah, no, you're very resourceful. And I mean, there are things you go through at an early age and things you go through later, which I'll allude to later. Um, But I mean, you're, I mean, you were, you got pregnant at what, age 12? and flew to LA and, uh, and you talked about how you, you know, it gave you this unspoken mantra, um, got a problem, deal with it, expel it, chop it off, abort it and move on. It took me a long time to understand or cultivate compassion.
1: Yeah, that was, um, that was a painful, uh, thing to write about, but I felt like it was important to write about. I didn't want to shy away from something that deep. And, um, you know, it, it was, uh, it did. It did take me a very long time to uh, break through that kind of shell, that toughness that I had to build up to deal with things like that. You know.
0: Well, it's important. Yeah. It's. It's. it's- Brave and generous of you to share that, and also important. I mean, because you're this is right before this is before Roe versus Wade had had come through, and you you're, you're living in Texas and you have to fly to California.
1: Yeah, and the Roe book v. is out right when Roe v. Wade could go away. So, you know, I think I think as people read that story and put a face to the uh, you know this, the the stigma or the shame it's of of abortion, it's like it's really about you know kind of giving a human being a woman a grown functioning human being the autonomy and the self-determination to decide when her body will be used as a vessel and her life will be used uh, her life will be um, meant to raise a child it's much better to choose that I'm a I'm a great mom now. But would I have been a great mom at 12? (laughs) No. (laughs) No.
0: No, the idea that, that, you know, government would, I mean, we could go in a whole rabbit hole on that, but the idea that government would have any say in what you as a 12-year-old and, you know, what you guys would be um, deciding and how you'd be dealing with it at that point is crazy
1: yeah it's not really anybody's business is it um but I'm so glad you read the book and enjoyed it and got stuff out of it and I I'm I'm proud of it I it's quite an sometimes I'm still I kind of have to pinch myself that I actually did it and accomplished it and I I want to write another book and it's kind of even hitting me more what an accomplishment accomplishment it was because Getting the motivation and the discipline to sit down and write again, i'm I'm struggling with, and I'm just starting to see, like, Oh, that's really something when you actually do it and get it done, you know?
0: So did you, did you do this book like as a conscious, like, I'm just going to sit down and write a book or had you been sort of writing this stuff down? And then you thought, you know what, this is a book.
1: I had written, I had been writing for a while, a few personal like essays that I hadn't done anything with, but that I had thought maybe, uh, would go into a memoir one day, but, but more, uh, I think the bigger nudge was that I was in school and, you know, I'm a very good student and part of the reason I'm a good student is that I'm a good writer. So in a lot of the classes, you know, if you can write a good paper, a lot of tests or like an essay, a lot of, uh, and I did a lot of creative writing classes. So I had gotten fairly confident in my abilities as a writer. but. The thing that was made me kind of spoiled and very fortunate was that I had a publishing deal. And there's no easier way to sit down and write other than knowing that it's going to be published. You know, my my hats off to all the writers that don't have that luxury. And. Like, I knew I had a deadline, I had been given an advance, and I knew it was going to come out. And that's terribly motivating to sit down and write every day. I think that's part of the reason I struggle more now, is that, well, gosh, is somebody going to put out this collection of short stories? So um, that was really... And the same with being in class. You know, you have an assignment, it's due, you need to get a grade. So writing with knowing that there's an end is a lot more, um, was for me very conducive to actually doing the work. Um, so when I got the writing deal, uh, I had some essays that I could send and they were really, really happy. I think when they first signed me, and I'm talking about University of Texas Press, which is a great company, great little house. They, uh, they have some awesome music books and series. They've, they've published Kristen Hirsch's two books and, um, they have a whole series like why so and so matters. Why uh, anyway? They're they're great, um, but they they approached me and then I think they were just wanted me to write my story, whether I could write or not. And then when they saw that I actually could write, they were really excited. So yeah, then it was just a matter of of getting past the, you know finding a process. It's a I found it was very different to sustain the effort to write a book than it is like say a song
0: right and they're in austin also which is where you are right
1: yeah which was really helpful because i could have meetings with with uh my champion there and the editor didn't want to look at anything until i would finished an entire draft and i didn't want to wait I did not want to wait to do a whole draft to get feedback so I hired out of my pocket an editor to look at like 10 chapters because I just thought you know if I'm doing something wrong I want to know now I'm a very quick study and if somebody can just point out something to me and that was enormously helpful and I would always suggest that to somebody if if they if they have an editor that says, oh, just give me a draft, I I would do what I did, which is get some feedback before you give them the draft. Because when I did give them a draft, it was just so much better than it would have been. You know,
0: so much of writing has to do with confidence and you, you want to feel good about what you're doing because every writer, no matter how accomplished and experienced you are, is going to have, you know, points where, where you're like, this is terrible. What am I doing? I'm wasting my time. And you, you, you get filled with self-doubt and anytime you can work with someone like an editor who can sort of give you an outside perspective of, Hey, what you're doing is, is on the right track. Maybe, you know, tweak this a little bit or that it's just having someone having your back in that way is really helpful. It's
1: so important. You're right. And I mean, like you say, the, the, the pendulum just within your own self. Like I, I would literally look at something I'd written and think I'm a genius. This is, everyone's going to flip out. This is going to be number one on the New York times bestseller. And the next day I'd be like, you are such an amateur. This is so bad, you know, and it would just swing all over the place. So you're absolutely right. Um, it's so important to get, uh, Feedback, And I've been reading, I've been reading a lot of interviews with, with writers, uh, just to kind of nudge me and, and motivate me for th- what I want to do next. And so many of them say what you just said, like, you know, having a mentor, having somebody kind of on your side that's, that, that, uh, believes in you is, is so great
0: yeah no i'm in a writer's group where we just meet once every month and sometimes we're not showing each other anything but it's kind of just feeling like you're you're not in it alone is key and you know the fact that you respond to deadlines and are filled with self-doubt mean that you're totally a professional writer so <laughs>
1: <laughs> my favorite thing that i've was the, is the three P's that I like so dealt with in such like like boulders of three Pness, which is uh, procrastination, um, perfectionism, and paralysis. And I, I had each of those like in immense forms that I had to deal with. To, there should be the fourth P is the process because I you can't really get to the fourth P of process till you figure out your way around those boulders of procrastination. And my first one was perfectionism. And I literally rewrote the first three chapters for probably six months. You know, just, I couldn't get past that because every time I would sit down, I would just start tweaking and and making it better and better and better. And uh, finally, I was like, you're never going to finish this book if you don't stop doing that. And I learned how to, not agonize over making every sentence a perfect work of art you know like just spew it out so that the next day you've got a few pages that you can maybe find find what's lively find what has the energy and just start building on top of that
0: yeah the perfectionism becomes a way to procrastinate because it's like sometimes the the blank page in front of you is so intimidating that you're like well i'm just going to go fix the thing i already wrote
1: oh yeah exactly and then but then i learned also how to procrastinate in a productive way here's me with the the peas again um i got very productive with my procrastination techniques and i would use it for research so like and then eventually i'd be like okay enough research you're just putting this off um so but That was, I mean, it was really helpful to like do the research I needed to do. And I I have the most, I compiled the most thorough accounting of uh, all the tour dates. Like I would look up tour dates and I would just see these big gaps and I'm like, there's nothing online. So I compiled that and I compiled playlist of all the music that was, um, I was listening to at, as, at any given age or a given year, which was super helpful because it really helped put me back in that place. You know, like, okay, 1972, I'm 13. This is my favorite songs. This is what was, this right. was what was in the movie soundtracks. This was on AM, this was on FM. This was the the, the stuff that you were hearing on the soul stations and uh, making playlists. and. Man, that was really helpful. And I've had a lot of people tell me how much just the how much I talk about music in the book that they enjoy that. That a lot of people just when I'll talk about a song that I like or, or something that's that's ha- you know they would listen to it and it really kind of gave them another parallel journey.
0: Well, yeah, and in, you know those your descriptions of like the early 70s and when you're listening to stuff and it's and so much of it is just that early male you know rock and roll the faces t-rex and and all of that and and the idea that Susie quattro was such a revelation it, you know when you sort of look back on it you're thinking oh yeah there was this there was that but really like that that for you would sort of so come out of nowhere because it just wasn't in the the culture at that time um you know it does shape how you know it's, it makes makes sense of like how you know everything that follows from that
1: yeah i i, I really think that um You know, had there been more people, girls my age, you know, I don't think think I would have felt like I was the only one if there had been, if Susie Quattro had been on the radio in America. Because when I got to England in 1973, 74, there was lots more teenage female musicians, you know, in England and probably in Australia and Europe too than there were in America because probably because of Susie Quattro, it's just about visibility. And that's one of the things that um, I think is so important, you know, just that, that women's role, even though it might not be, yet gotten as big as like, you know, the Stones or the Beatles or something, but it's still relevant to be visible.
0: The whole idea that, that in rock and roll, it took so long for there to be women who played instruments in rock bands like 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 you would think that oh of course there are women who are playing you know guitar or bass or drums or whatever keyboards but really it's there it was such a rarity in you know the first what 20 years of rock and roll
1: well again i think if there had been more visibility and you know it's also very difficult i mean nowadays women can um you know sometimes figure out how to be in a band and and still have a family you know it's the woman that that births the child so if you have your average you know musician and she's a woman and she's 27 and she's been at it and then she meets somebody and they decide to start a family and she's 29 or 30 often that can be the end of her music career because how she's supposed to you know truck around in a van, you know, with a, with an infant. Um, and it was even, but it can be done. And, but it was, must, it must've been even harder in the sixties, but there were women there were, I mean, if you dig in and you can do it more now, there wasn't the research available when I was a teenager, but there were bands, you know, in the early '60s, that were women. There was women doing big bands in the '40s, and uh, it's they're out. Th- it, it's just kind of a shame that we didn't have the access or the visibility.
0: Right. Yeah. Like a lot of times, growing up, you don't know about like Sister Rosetta Tharp
1: Yeah, I didn't know about yeah. Sister. I didn't know about Fanny until I was. In the Go Go's and in in uh, Los Angeles, I'd never I'd never heard of Fanny. I don't know why. Maybe some people had, but I hadn't. Um, I'd heard of yeah, the I Runaways because they were they came through town. You know, I didn't know about the Pleasure Seekers. You know, I didn't. I knew Susie Quattro, but I didn't know she had a band when she was fourteen in Detroit. And I just met um R- Ravan a couple of summers ago and she was showing me video from 1962 of um and I hope I said her name right Genya I think it is Genya Raven um I always get mixed up with how to pronounce pronounce that but she was showing me her band Goldie and the Gingerbreads, gingerbreads in 1962 I'm three years old you know If I could have seen that band when I was five years old, I might have been already wanting to play guitar. So visibility is really important.
0: Right. And then by the time the Go-Go's form, there's still the sense of it being a novelty, which, you know, I would think looking back, it's, you know, maybe frustrating that it was conceived as such a novelty because, you know, five women in a band together in the early 80s by then shouldn't be that much of a novelty. And how much do you feel like that shaped sort of the career you guys had and, you know, the way you were able to sort of be perceived?
1: Well, you know, the Go-Go's formed before I joined uh, and directly out of the Los Angeles punk scene, which was pretty inclusive in terms of uh, ethnicity and uh, gender. The L.A. punk scene, you know, did have women in it. It wasn't, you know, when I moved there, there there were still more females in bands than there were in austin um and i had been doing it for years so i don't think we ever thought of ourselves as a novelty at all we were just you know kind of we never did see that but it did uh, feel like that sometimes i mean a lot of times we would i mean i wrote about this in my book like we always had the um the work the work part of it Like you know, when we'd go to the radio station, you know, you could tell people were going out of their way to come look at us or meet us, uh, that more so than they might have with a, with a guy band. And, you know, we, we've never had trouble getting interviewed or getting on TV or getting into uh, a station, but getting past that point to like being added to the radio playlist, it was like the wall would come down so yeah and in, in that respect uh i think it se- seemed kind of like a novelty to some people but to us it never did
0: right yeah no, you get that label thrown on your girl group and it's like you know you wouldn't call rem a boy group um it's just a group the but uh, and, and the, and, and the <laughs> idea of it being girl too it's like instead of woman it's it's just
1: well you know When you're young and you're a teenager, I don't mind being called an an all-girl band. Uh, I think there is a time where that's, you know, it's, you know, I wouldn't want to be called an all-girl band now. But, um, you know, I I didn't mind people so much saying that, you know, that, or pointing out that it's all female because um, it is, you know, but eventually it would be nice to have it not be something that you know that that is
0: remarkable you know right you want people to acknowledge and recognize the accomplishment of the band um but then you also want it to not be just the defining aspect of the band because then it becomes harder to grow i was thinking that it's almost sort of like that mentality of you know how random people tell women to smile on the sidewalk or something. And in a way, the Go-Go's, I'm perceived, I'm projecting this. You could tell me if I'm right, but I'm perceiving that the Go-Go's as a band were kind of subjected to that mentality all the time. Like you're all supposed to be smiling all the time and be the perky all-girl band.
1: Well, I think um, that, yeah, the analogy is good because I think, and I wrote about this as well, it was kind of like, I think... I don't know who the they is, but I'll just, for simplicity's sake, say they, uh, the, and I don't necessarily mean the man or the patriarchy or the, but just the people that aren't cool, I guess they, they do like to categorize successful women. It seems like, and I, I see it in, in, uh, politics and I see it in the workforce and just in career successful career oriented women a lot and and music it just felt like because we weren't like really we weren't like copying men in any way we weren't like you know posturing the way we'd seen men do or trying to be like what we, we weren't trying to look like the Rolling Stones, you know? We were just kind of, so that was, that was, um of made I think people go okay so what are they all oh, they sometimes they wear dresses but they're not slutty dresses so let's call them they're the girl next door yes that's what it is they're the girl next door you know it's like kind of this this mental process seemed to be going through like okay they don't dress slutty and they don't try to look like men and they seem like they're having fun they seem like they're having fun they don't seem like they're so it's like they just start forming opinions and you know what i'm saying kind of and really it was all things that kind of just were just natural who we were
0: do you feel like the projection from the outside of that sort of thing affected the music that you all made like that that there was sort of a sense of well we need to do this kind of upbeat stuff because that's what's expected out of a group like us or i mean you're, or you're pretty much of an upbeat group anyway so it's not really an issue
1: no no we, i mean the the group was was the the writers were you know just wrote whatever we wanted to write it, it we weren't affected by that i mean if i had brought in a song that you know was like a, a dirge you know it, nobody would have wanted to do it but it would have mainly been because it probably isn't wasn't a good song. I mean, what's a good dirge anyway? But, yeah, no, I don't think it it affected us. It just it was very natural what we wrote and what we sounded like was was not it wasn't thought out or planned much. We kind of just know. like even today, if I write a song, like, I know right away if it's a song that the Go-Go's would like, and I might kind of just put it aside. Not that we're doing anything or plan to do anything, but I do have, you know, I do think there's a, a all of the people that write for the band know, that, know when it is a
0: Go-Go song. Right. Well, I was thinking even something like, uh, you know, Turn to You, which when I hear that sort of on its own, it seems like actually this kind of desperate emotion and this, you know, very hard rocking song. And then not, not that the go-go's are the only ones who have this sort of thing going on in the video era. Um, but you watch the video for that. And the video is so kind of perky and jokey and, you know, Rob Lowe's in there and everyone's, and it's just like the, the emotion of the video is so happy. And it's, and I feel like the song is actually this kind of desperate call, but they're sort of like, like now nah, we can't have like sort of a, you know, desperation video it has to be kind of a funny video because that's sort of what the image they're selling at that point
1: yeah i don't i don't think i get what you're saying but i don't think there was there was i mean we always left the videos up to whoever the director was like we were not involved in storyboarding out the video uh at that time and um that video turned to you was really our first one with a big director. It was Mary Lambert and she has, she had done some of Madonna's. So we were actually just thrilled to have a big director and a bigger budget than we that we'd ever had. And we completely trusted her to do the storyboard and, you know, and kind of just went with that. So yeah, we, we didn't, that wasn't a planned out thing either. We, we basically showed up and, you know, you know, after talking and meeting and seeing what the storyboard of a video
0: was. Well, you have a funny story in the the book about how the storyline of the video kind of paralleled something that actually happened with Rob Lowe and.
1: Yeah, I was um, I I was the one that asked Rob to to be in the video because he was uh, a friend, but yeah, it was funny because there, well, I don't want to give away the story, but there's a good story in the book about. Belinda and Rob
0: and me. If you watch the Turn To You video and just transfer it to real life, it's something like that.
1: Yeah, it's Without. like art imitating life.
0: <laughs> Without the director realizing it.
1: Yes, exactly.
0: Writing the book, did it make you sort of re you know, everything like, I I mean, when you write stuff down, it sort of puts stuff in perspective. And I'm wondering how much it sort of changed your perspective on, you know, a, you know, your family life and growing up, but also the band and sort of seeing the band in a different light once you were putting it all on the page.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I have said in all seriousness that the book was the most effective and profound and cheapest therapy I've ever had. And I really did process so much. And my daughter, who's 18, just started reading the book for the first time a couple of days ago. And I was telling her that I said I really feel like I needed to write this book because of processing just the way it was with my mom and my mom's still very much a part of my life and I've I've had a you know a lifelong uh, as an adult struggle with the dynamic between us and I think I really needed to write that book to to see the the positives, because I had such a resentment and negativity towards my mom, and the and people that read the book will understand that. But you know, there's the book ends in 1990, and there's you know it's 2021, so I've got another. Thirty years of my mom that I've been dealing with, and it's like the the negativity and resentment was a bad feeling. I don't, and it's like I said, being wired to take care of myself. Part of taking care of yourself is ridding yourself of negativity and resentments and stuff. And the book did wonders for me in that way because I saw all the all her failings, but I also started to see a bigger picture about how. Given her capabilities, given her nature, she did the absolute very best that she could, and she um, she was in her own way extremely supportive. I mean, my entire career might not have happened if I'd had a traditional mom and dad, and most likely wouldn't have happened. Most likely, no traditional mom or dad would have said, "Okay, you can drop out of school at four, at a." in ninth grade and go to a hippie commune and learn guitar and then you don't have to go to call i mean what parent is going to do that you know so in many ways her being off the grid and doing things her way opened the doors for me to have you know an extraordinary career so there's that whole thing and then as far as the band it was extraordinary in that regard too because when i started the book i was in the aftermath of a horrific uh breakup with the band yeah they had kicked me out and it was a a a horrific terrible time in my life and i had come to terms with it by 2015 because all the crap went down in 2012. so i'm three years out of the band and i'm like worried i'm like well what's it going to be when I write about the Go-Go's? You know, is it going to be all like sour grapes and bitterness? And what I found was that when I just tapped into what was, that it was like, the the adventure the extraordinary luck the blessing how much fun how much i loved the band that's what overwrote and little by little i started healing from what had happened in terms of you know being being uh, ousted so that when in at the end of 2017 when i reunited with them i was able to do so without A grudge without a lot of bad I mean of course we all talk things out and there was apologies and whatnot but writing the book I think healed me in a way that I could kind of integrate back into my rightful place uh, in a joyful way rather than with a bunch of like you know just being like fuck you guys you know (laughs) it's like so I it was a, a really good thing to do and just in terms of my relationship with my mom and my relationship with the band and I felt like uh and it wasn't phony I mean what I write it wasn't like I was tiptoeing around at all you know I was I think I was very honest and very and brutally honest and uh in doing so it helped me it helped me grow past and heal things that were painful from both the band and my mom
0: right I was I was doing the math in my head on when you, how you must have started this book before you were back in the band and and so that was that's that's sort of what I was getting at it' was like how you were sort of processing that while you were sort of outside of it even though by the time it came out you were sort of back in the fold but yeah. my understanding of it was that you had sued them because they'd there was, they'd set up something where you were being reduced in your 20% share of the band and.
1: Yeah. Like if, if they didn't want to work with me anymore, that's fine and dandy. You know, nobody wants to go be with people that don't want to work with them, but you can't deprive a, a, a partner of a business share that they've built for 30 years that's not legal so i was kind of forced into the lawsuit thing to protect my business interests and it was that was that had been settled in 2014 um so i was kind of just seeing it as a blessing when once that was out of the way the business stuff and i missed the band a lot i like being in the go-go's a lot i like performing i like the fans i love the music i love the the people that i played with so i'm not going to say i didn't miss it and it wasn't painful to see them playing but i had also seen, you know, I was writing a book. I was, got to be with my daughter during a very important phase. Like I wasn't having to leave and do things. And also the band was very toxic and negative in that period. And it was nice to not have that in my life. It was, to be honest, it was really nice. Like what happened to me, I wasn't the first person that had been turned on. And uh, it just kinda happened to come to a head and work. Uh, and go to the furthest extreme with me. But um, so there was a, a kind of a, a, a poisoning in there that it was nice to not be a, a part of anymore. But so things was, seem, things it, now seem very healed and very... Um, like it's, it's much more like it used to be.
0: Yeah, what was it that sort of blew things up in 2013 and what had changed to... For you to be able to sort of be back in the fold and things to be back in a better place again. Well,
1: oh, how did I get back in?
0: Well, yeah, what sort of what was it that, what had become so toxic and how did that go away?
1: Oh, I I don't know. I, I don't really know uh, what, I mean, I mean, there's, there's, I, I have ideas about things, but um, there's just a, a history of, You know, some people, it's like a marriage. It's like being married to, you know, four people and in a long term marriage or a family even, you know, sometimes I think everybody's had this experience where like, you know, you you get in an argument with your with your partner or your sibling or something, and then out of nowhere, they'll kind of explode and say, you always do this or you never pay any attention. And you're just like, what? What are you talking about? So I guess what I'm trying to say is in any long term, deep uh relationship, there's things from the past that people hold on to. There's hurts, there's scars and things that you might not have even realized. And then there's personalities that have some people, you know, have resentments and sometimes people have, they're jealous, you know, they're jealous because somebody else might have something outside of life that they want. Or sometimes people, uh, S- something about a person will reflect back to that person something in themselves. It's just, I, I hate to be so vague, but I'm not going to specifically say things about people in my band, you know, but right. I don't really need to because I think any person that hears what I'm saying knows what I'm talking about. It's just uh, long term relationships, whether they're marriages or families or bands. They are, uh, you know, people are complicated and people are different and the way they deal with stuff is different. So, um, yeah, there there had been there had been things in the past where where people had been targeted to get out. And, you know, it's if anybody's this interested in it, they can go read my my lawsuit. But it's, you know, hopefully people have something better to do with their time.
0: Right. No, it's uh, these band dynamics are, are really tricky. And, and I don't, I have no idea whether this informs any of it at all, but you were really the final piece in the go Go's becoming the go-go's, um, uh, Gina shock. And then you, you were sort of the Ringo of the band because they were, they were, they were already, you know, writing songs and performing, but they needed that final piece to make them sound like a cohesive band and become the band that everyone you know fell in love with. Um, and, but I'm wondering whether, you know, the fact that you were sort of the last in, is that something where, cause I'm sort of like that. And sometimes where I've sort of like join a group that's already cohesive, you know, of whatever, I always sort of feel a little bit more like the outsider and that stuff can linger even when, I mean, obviously it's been many, many years. Is that something that lingered with you or was it really like, no, we're just, you know, it's the five of us because we're the ones who went through everything.
1: Oh no, I was never the outsider in any regard ever in the band. I mean, everything that happened to us that was any major import happened when I was in the band, and I never felt like the outsider, and I was never treated. I was integral.
0: Tell me about the sort of creative process of, you know, just working on the songs and and collaborating on the songs and how each of you would would write differently, like whether Charlotte or Jane or you or the combination of them. Um,
1: Well, I mean, we we tended to... uh, sit down together and write. Nowadays, it's different. You can just send people files or, you know, send them things. But back then it was pretty much sitting down together in a room and uh, at a, a typical songwriting session, it would be, you would try to come up with some ideas and play them to each other. And then, you know, the writers would kind of go, oh, that, I like that. Let's work on that. And it's usually just a little bit of an idea. And then you're just sitting there with your guitars and like, well, what if it does this next? Or somebody might go, oh, I have a chorus from a song I was working on. It might fit perfectly. Oh, let's hear it. It's just a very malleable, fluid kind of thing that could go in any direction when you when you collaborate. And uh, I like collaborating a lot. I, I think it's... I think it's a it's it's a a a really great way to write i think it's a lot more difficult now because we have really different tastes all of us uh you know writing the song club zero was was not easy not only because we were in different places but we all have really different tastes Um, and i would i think um I think that uh, it's just, everything is a lot harder now, you know, to in terms of being in a band when there's a, a period of time where everybody's young and has the same drive and the same direction and the same energy and it's all very, uh, got a synchronicity that has a lot of power to it and that momentum along with having great songs, you know, led to us having a lot of success, but it's a, it gets very different, you know, when you get older, you you don't have the same, the same drives and
0: whatnot. Well, your taste is, I mean, from listening to your more recent stuff, I mean, you've been a rock and, you know, guitar rock and roller throughout your career and you were a guitarist before you learned to play bass, to be in the Go-Go's and you moved back to, to guitar and, and what, and it just seems consistent that there's like a, you know, aggressive guitar sound, which is something that, that I love also. And, and that there's maybe was a tension then or now of like sort of the rock versus the pop. And especially in the eighties when all that sort of thing was really pronounced, um, you know, and I'm wondering if that was sort of part of the the taste thing too. And that maybe, you know, some, some people wanted it to sound a little more, You know, that kind of 80s synthy sound And some others are like, no, we need to You know, Richard Goddard's production was already too slick We need to not go more slick, that sort of thing
1: No, I mean, I think there's Everybody has a song or two that they might not You know, it's like, I've, I've certainly got There's a couple songs that I don't care for at all But most of the time a song doesn't Doesn't get played unless everybody's into it you know and and doesn't get on an album unless everybody likes it um and i i certainly would do my best to make a song be the best it can be um but no there was not like i was surprised i on the third album i had this song called i'm the only one and i didn't think the go-go's would ever do it it's a it's a rocker of a song and uh, I was really surprised when they wanted to do it. And I was happy. And same with my song, We Don't Get Along, which I'm about to re-release as a single of my own. I'm redoing some of my songs that I did in the Go-Go's. And uh, I was surprised when they wanted to do We Don't Get Along, because uh, I thought they were a little bit more rock and roll than, the, than, than what our sound was. But uh, I think everybody was always open to you know being whatever we could do well if it sounded good if Belinda could sing it well and everybody could play it I mean Gina and I were definitely you know a a rock and roll rhythm section
0: Right you know I went back after I read your book and I picked up um Belinda Carlisle's uh, Lips Unsealed memoir. And she she was talking about a talk show and she actually said, uh, you know, I'm the only one while a good song from Kathy never felt to me like it belonged on a Go-Go's record. And then she also said The Turn to You was one of her least favorite songs. And I was just like, what? Mm -hmm. Like, those are like the rockers for me. But so, and then, so that was kind of what was making me wonder like, well, is that sort of the split and that this stuff was too rocking for her? I mean, she also wrote she was talking about her own struggles and said, unlike the other girls, I hadn't worked on my craft as hard as I should have. And she was saying how it was harder for her to sing some of the stuff on talk show. So maybe that was part of it.
1: Yeah. I think, you know, she might, I think at that time, you know, she, she felt, I think she felt um, displaced somewhat, not as a singer, but as a, as a vocal force in the band, and I think she probably, I'm just speaking, she's never, we've never had this conversation, but I think it's possible that she felt like she was just the one that sang and that her opinions weren't as important or something. I, I think over the couple of years, she just might've felt that. And if she had an opinion, like, I don't think I do a good job on I'm the only one, she might've just... Well, she might have been more leaning like, well, the producer likes it and the band likes it and I'm going to do my best at it, you know. Uh, But all that's changed. You know, Belinda is very opinionated and has a lot of confidence about what she can do now. I just think that was a a difficult record at at that time. Everybody was kind of fracturing a lot. And I'm just speaking, you know, like she might have just felt... It might have just taken her some time to realize, you know what, I don't really like that song that much or whatever, uh, but I know I'm, I'm the only one is, like I'll probably redo that one. I wrote it with Carleen Carter and a, good, a great guitar player friend of mine named Danny Harvey and I might, I've been having a lot of fun uh, revisiting some of my Go-Go's uh, contributions and doing the, redoing them. In updated ways, I've been having, I did Beneath the Blue Sky, and I've got I'm the Only One coming out, and I think I'm also going to do I'm the Only One and Can't Stop the World. I think I'll re- right. do redos of those.
0: That sounds great. You know, the the album that fewer people know is God Bless the Go-Go's, and there's interesting material on there that you were involved in as well like the song apology which has that key line i'm sorry but i have no regrets and then there's a song daisy chain which you co-wrote with jane weedlin and jim jill sawbill which is filled with regret and uh i was just like i was listening to that and looking at the the lyrics and says that at number one not doing so fine still having some fun spilling the wine the rising sun never felt too kind. We were out of our minds, trying too hard to play the part. KV, that's you, burned out like a shooting star, been brought down by a broken heart. We were falling apart. Who knew we were uh, we were going down? So careless with what we found, uh, making and breaking our daisy chain. And that's the last song on the album. So that's, it sounds like it's sort of uh, you guys looking back like, okay, this is sort of what happened to, to us and yeah, how we an were trying
1: back? To, we were trying to kind of just tell our story, you know, and acknowledge our story. It was our first album in, I think, 20 years. And uh, I remember very well writing that song with Jane. Jane and, and Jill Sobule had started it and I just loved the music I don't even know what direction they were taking it in lyrically but I loved the music and said you know I think we could this reminds me of like you know a Mata Hoople song or something and and I so I worked on the music and uh, we came up with the idea for it to kind of tell our story and it seemed like just a, a perfect thing and and then like somebody said like that because we called it daisy chain and somebody said that that's like some sex thing which kind of ruined it you know I'm like, <laughs> like
0: like, not that jay-z chain people
1: i didn't know that there was such a thing It kind of sucked like no that's not what we we're talking about
0: yeah that would that would give the song a very different meaning from what's intended <laughs>
1: it's like why do people have to ruin everything
0: the go-go is and you've written a lot about this belinda has this in her book it's been in you know the documentaries and stuff there was you know there was the element uh, the factor that drugs had in the band and and that's sort of going back to the yin yang stuff i was talking about at the beginning where on one hand um you know it, it has a very destructive effect on the other hand you're you're learning all of you know the go-go songs and what like 48 hours on this binge and it's it it gets you this gig in a sense and it's like it's it's sort of something that's part of the times um but also something that that hurt the band ultimately that's not really a question but i'm just sort of wondering like do you associate do you think that sort of the the drugs part and the music part are kind of inextricable at this point
1: um well no I think I mean I think that we the that did the the drugs part did more to kind of keep us in that kind of not growing up immature cocoon I don't think I don't think musically it real, you know I mean I wrote some great songs when I was you know using and drinking and you know we all we all did and I've written great songs without it you know I certainly never felt like I needed that but I think the, the, the bad thing was that you know being in a band when you're young you don't really grow up it's like you're in college and you go kind of crazy in your freshman year and then you kind of start getting it and over the four years of a college student they kind of turn into an adult that's kind of the, the, the plan I think and with a band you don't necessarily get past the freshman year (laughs) you're just like you stay kind of immature because you don't really have to grow up and um and i think that's was the 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 detrimental thing was we didn't really evolve uh to an emotional maturity where we could deal with the complexities of our relationships
0: well and people evolve at different rates too so so like charlotte It sounds like charlotte got sober before like you did and then you did maybe before belinda did and so everyone's sort of at different places and i would think that would be very tricky to navigate when you know some people are in you know recovery in in certain ways and some people are not
1: yeah but people also had different levels of, of addiction too and different you know i was a very high functioning uh user and you know, Charlotte was had hit rock bottom. So there's, there's, it's it's not black and white either. There's all these shades of gray as well.
0: Yeah, and and Belinda's book it makes it sound like she was struggling for many years afterwards and sort of not owning up to it. And there's a lot about her own marriage and all this sort of thing i mean it's a very different sort of trajectory but
1: yeah um, she was she was um like once once charlotte and i were sober we didn't really even know what she was up to because we weren't participating
0: yeah there's a part earlier in the book in in belinda's book where she says at the end of june as we set out on tour the gogos are divided into two camps there were the good girls jane kathy and gina and then there were the bad girls charlotte and me (laughs) did you, you remember it being split that way
1: uh, it wasn't like that for very long on the, uh, I wrote about that too. On the third tour, Jane and I both had boyfriends and we were kind of on a health kick. And so, you know, it doesn't mean we were sober. It means that we were just not maybe carrying on in, in such a way because like, I would want to go back to my hotel room and, and call my boyfriend. I wouldn't want to go stay up all night with an
0: excess right but then later you're 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 in rio you're partying with rod stewart so
1: yeah yeah
0: there there are a lot of fun cameos in your book by the way the, the you being there for the beginnings of the traveling willberries is pretty awesome
1: yeah that's epic uh, it was uh i mean i was lucky to have written about that i have been keeping journals on and off for many years so um I was lucky to go through my journals and have, you know, things to remind me of things like that, that were kind of just not like, a you know, just a night or a day or a, a, an event rather than a being a party to.
0: And uh, I, I love the fact that that because I'm a big Nick Lowe fan and he was married to your friend, Carlin Carter, way back when, and uh, that your band, the Techstones is the drum kit being used in the cruel to be kind video, which you wrote about. And I went, I'm like, there it is. That's Kathy Valentine's band in like 79.
1: That was, we thought it was our big break.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, that's great. Um, When you look back on sort of the songs you've been involved in are the, are the ones that have sort of lasted and become the most sort of beloved songs the ones you would have expected, or there ones are there ones that you thought, oh no, I thought this was the song, and but it turned out that this was the song.
1: Um, well, I don't really have a lot of. Uh, I mean, my signature trademark song is "Vacation," you know. And if you had told me when I wrote it that it was going to, you know, be you know something that could be licensed to TV shows and commercials and movies. You know, forty five years later, I I don't think I would have ever believed that. So uh, uh, I'm I'm really grateful for that song, and I'm really proud of it. You know, I write in the book one of my biggest regrets is that I gave away very large chunks of a song that is pretty much my song, but at the same time if it wasn't for the go-go's nobody would know the song so it's hard to you know wallow in too much upset about that there's a my original version is the theme song to a television show called Hightown on Star on the Stars channel and that makes me really happy to hear that original version being used
0: yeah i've gone back to youtube to listen to it and it's a, a not surprisingly a very rocking version of that song
1: yeah, It's funny, though, like I was saying, I'm going to redo a lot of my songs that I brought to the Go-Go's. I don't really want to redo that one, you know. I just, I don't know if I could do it. Like the other ones I've redone, I'm not saying they're better. They're just, but it is a take. It's my take on my song. And it's funny, on vacation, I'm just not sure that uh, I have i t- I'm really, I think the Go-Go's, version of vacation might be the definitive hmm. version so i don't know maybe one day i'll do it I, my, I my my uh, big goal is to do a version and get like you know tyler the creator to do a rap right in the middle of it that's like my
0: dream that would be great and uh another favorite of of mine is uh, head over heels which you which is a yeah. co-write Yeah. Tell tell me like the process of how that song came to be.
1: I went to Charlotte's, we were writing for the third album and she sat down at the piano and, and started playing, um, the verse. And I just loved it. I loved the way she, she had a confidence at the piano that I hadn't ever heard in her guitar playing. And she hadn't played a lot of piano, you know, in the band. And, uh, I just loved it and I, I had lyrics and I started singing the lyrics to what she was playing and I think it was her that came up with the title um, so I I don't think that sounds like a title I would have come up with I think it's her title but uh, most of the lyrics I wrote and we worked on the melody together and uh, it's really I mean I've played it on the guitar just kind of, you know, sometimes I do little, especially with my book, I'll go out and I don't like to just do readings. I like to talk about the book, play some songs. So I've, I've done head over heels on guitar and it's, it, it can be done, but the piano is kind of makes the song really special.
0: Well, and it's just, a, it's such a muscular recording too. I mean, the band just sounds fantastic on it and you've got your, your little bass break in there as well. Um, but it's just like, it's just one of the best, you know, recordings you guys did, I think.
1: Yeah, no, I, I, I was, I'm really proud of that record. I I listened to it for the first time. Uh, I don't listen to our music really at all. And I listened to it not that long ago. And I was like, oh, wow. Like even some of the songs I thought weren't good. I, I
0: like a lot. I think it's a solid record and, and it's, it sounds, I mean, I'm, I'm, you know i know that there was some both of both you and belinda write about sort of the disappointment of hearing the first mixes of the first album which actually still sounds pretty lively to me now like i think that actually you listen to that record and it still pops out of the speakers um but there's a sort of another element of you know production going on on talk show as well
1: yeah well i think my um Martin Russian was definitely the right guy for
0: it. I have to fault you guys for something because I've always been, you know, feeling my feeling on the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame was, you know, it's like the end. It's antithetical to actual rock and roll. Like, like yeah. rock and roll is not about something that's official, officially, you know, recognized in a museum. Yeah. It's like rock and roll is something you see on a stage where the sticky floor and all of that. Yeah. So I, so I, so I go in with all those feelings. And But at the same time, I'm like, but of course the Go-Go's should be in there. They have to be in there. You know, damn it. Where the hell are the Go-Go's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? So you guys made me care about who's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame when I really didn't want to care about it. Mm-hmm. And I was very glad when, when you were voted into it because it's the, the world seemed a little bit more right because of that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm, I know a lot of people are upset with it, I guess. I, I mean, but it seems like people really? are upset. Well, it seems like people are upset always with, with who is in. And, and I've never been like that, like where I could even care, like like you. It's like, I mean, some people, they get really upset about who gets in and who doesn't get in. I do think it's kind of weird that the New York Dolls aren't in, you know? I do think, but it's, it's still, I don't know, I just can't really... But uh, I think um, I think it's a really good thing. I hope that it opens the door a little wider for women to, to be, like, like I said, it's it's really about visibility. And you know, I don't think you can I don't think you can dismiss an, an accomplishment by a, a female act just because it wasn't as big as some equivalency of a male act. I don't think that's the, it's about education in a museum and about, um, acknowledging something and, you know, no matter what, we, we did, we, we were not the first all-female band. We were not the first all-female, all-female band to write songs or to play instruments. People get that wrong a lot. What the accomplishment is, is that we were the first ones to have a number one record. And that's just as valid of an accomplishment as, you know, what tons of guys did. So, yeah, I agree. It it matters.
0: See, and I would say that the the accomplishment, even in addition to the number one record, but maybe even more, is that those number that number one record still sounds great. I mean, there are plenty of people great. in the 80s who had, like, number one records that you're like, eh. But oh, the Go-Go stuff totally sounds great, and it totally holds up, and that's why you deserve to be in there.
1: It's, it's absolutely true. I mean, there was this weird period from, like, 86 to 89 where I don't even understand how the songs were hits when you look back. I mean, there's songs I even liked then that I listen to now, and there's, like, nothing there, you know? there's It's like... You know, it's just crazy. So I do agree completely. I think that that record, I think the the Go-Go's music holds up. And I think it's uh, absolutely significant and that we, I know for a fact that we influenced everyone from bands like Green Day to, you know, Courtney Love to a lot of the Baruch Assault. I mean, a lot of good music came in the wake and, and we were part of the inspiration of the making people want to go do that so that's that's what it's all about
0: what are you most looking forward to about that experience
1: the induction yeah um i don't i don't i really I've, i've lived long enough to know that if i the things that I don't look forward to often end up being the best things and the things I get all excited about often end up being a letdown. So I kind of don't really project much about it. I, I hope that there's a jam at the end and I get to play in the big jam. I would like to do that. I've been playing this cool six-string bass a lot. You can play it like a guitar, but it's kind of sonically in between a... A, a guitar and a bass and I would love to bring that and play that on the jam that's my dream you know to kind of just get a chance to jam with some cool people Foo Fighters and stuff um, but other that than that cool. I, I kind of wouldn't mind I I'm excited if I get to meet Jay-Z and Beyonce that would be really cool Um I don't know. I think it's just, I'll be excited because I get to see my daughter. She's coming and she's coming, she's going away to college. And so it'll be a a good little couple days that I get to see her. So I'm, I'm excited about it. And you know, it's always fun to get dressed up.
0: Well, it sounds like it should be a fantastic party. So have a have a wonderful time with it you you've earned it um you know again all i ever wanted out in paperback from university of texas press kathyvalentine.com go check out her music it sounds great thank you so much for being on this i really appreciate it
1: thank you mark i enjoyed it too
0: a wrap on episode three of the carol pop podcast thanks so much to kathy valentine whose book all i ever wanted a rock and roll memoir is now available in paperback from the university of texas press it's a great read check it out also go to her website kathyvalentine.com to read more about her and to listen to and buy her music that includes her new duet with rhett miller we don't get along The Go-Go's will be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame on Saturday, October 30th. The next Carol Pop guest will be Lonnie Jordan, singer, songwriter, and keyboardist of the band War. You know their songs, such as Lowrider, Why Can't We Be Friends, The World is a Ghetto, The Cisco Kid, All Day Music, and with Eric Burden, Spill the Wine. Could you name its members or tell me much about them? Why is this band, which broke so much ground with its mix of soul, rock, funk, Latin rhythms, and jazz, so underrecognized. And no, this isn't the band that sang war. What is it good for? That was Edwin Starr. And the fact that people get that confused drives Lonnie Jordan crazy. At any rate, Lonnie Jordan has amazing tales to tell that only could have happened in LA in the late 60s and 70s. One involves Jim Morrison in a Superman costume. You have been warned. Thanks to Lou Carlozzo, the producer engineer behind the CaroPop theme, and so much more. For production, engineering, and arranging work, check out Karma Productions Worldwide. That's Karma with a C. And email Lou at Lou at quoted.com. That's L-O-U at com. Thank you to Marty Rosenbaum, master web developer and troubleshooter, extraordinaire and fantastic person. The Carops podcast is produced by Chris Swake, who makes it sound much more professional than it really is. Thank you, Chris. You rock. I'm Mark Caro. Please follow me on Twitter at Mark Caro at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O and visit the Caropop website, caropop.com for posts about music, movies and food, and also the Caropop podcast. Or should I call it the Carol Podcast? I keep going back and forth. Thank you.